0: Welcome to the Stories Christmas Eve service. This is our first Christmas Eve service of the year and of, of today, obviously, and it's a great, great um, moment, just a great occasion to see your faces again. I haven't seen some of y'all since last year. I don't mean any judgment there, I know, uh, extenuating circumstances. Some people are from out of town, and man, to get back together, what a, what a joy it is, and I don't know what kind of year you had. Um, I had a... At an up and down year, lots of wonderful things happen, lots of hard things happen, and maybe you are are feeling the same way today. I know there's some heavy burdens in the room today, and whatever you're bringing with you, I I encourage you here at the story to bring it authentically and um, to bring all of that to God, into His presence um, during this time, and not to put on a mask and just look happy and like everything's fine if it's not. You know, you can be real with God, and that's something we've aimed for here at the story. So, if you're new around here and, and don't know me, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. My wife and co-pastor, Giovanna, is running the show somewhere out there. <laughs> she is, I think, in the back. Uh, and uh, she, uh, she and I welcome you with all of our hearts today for, uh, for Christmas Eve. So how about um, the band? Like, they were pretty great today, right? So um, <laughs> grateful for them and for, really, for all of our volunteers um, that showed up on Christmas Eve um, to be here. Uh, And serve. So, um, you know, as we read those passages that we read earlier in the service that are so familiar because you've heard them a hundred times, even if you're not a church goer, you've heard them probably, you know, on the Charlie Brown Christmas special, like from Linus, like he, he taught you those passages and you almost could repeat them word for word and And that's good and bad, right? It's good because we want people to be familiar with these stories. It's bad because you can become overly familiar to the point of, you know, not really absorbing those stories and thinking about the words you're saying. And every Christmas I try to pull back a little bit from my over-familiarity with the passages themselves and try to imagine in real life terms what that first Christmas must have been like for Joseph and Mary right, because I want my Christmas as much as possible to reflect theirs, because they experienced all the fear and joy that a real Christmas brings, right, all the wonder and all the awe that a real Christmas brings. They had all of that, and I want my Christmas to not just be plastic and fake, but to be what they experienced as much as possible, and it was very real for them. We forget how real it was. These two people walked the earth, Mary and Joseph, And we forget that they were just teenagers when all of these events happened to them, right? Teenagers. We think Joseph was 17 or 18, working a job in construction, learning to support a family. Mary was younger, probably 14 years old, learning from her mom how to run a household, how to be a wife, how to be a mom, because they were expecting to be married within the year, and so they like any young couple that's expecting to get married, they had all these hopes and all these dreams, you know? They were real, real people, real teenage people with all these hopes and aspirations for the future. They had plans. They had plans until God showed up and wrecked all of them. God showed up and changed everything. He interrupted their cookie-cutter lives and made instead... Of Mary and Joseph's lives, he made an all-out scandal—a scandal—and we read it like it like it was pleasant, like it was all, they, they knew it was coming, and okay, I'm pregnant now, it's fine. Like no, <laughs> that's not how it happened. It was a full-blown scandal, and I think if you if you learn to read scripture um, in, between the lines a little it will start to speak to you in some new ways. And I'll give you some examples. So the the stories you read aren't always going to spell this out for you, like scandal. No, it's kind of subtle, but it's there. For example, it's clear from the story that Mary, after the angel showed up and gave her this troubling news, Mary ran away from her home. She ran away. She didn't go, okay, mom, dad, I'm pregnant. Let's have dinner. She ran away. It says it. At the end of this, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried. She didn't tell anybody in Nazareth about her news. She got out of town. Mary knew that no one would buy it. I'm pregnant, but I haven't done that thing that no Jewish unmarried girl is allowed to do. Like, No, no one would buy that. And she was right. The only person in the whole gospel account that buys Mary's story without any hesitation is Elizabeth. And that's where she goes, to Elizabeth. And the only reason Elizabeth bought it was because God let Elizabeth in on the secret. So she shows up and has this time with Elizabeth, which I can only imagine is a time of real respite and healing. But the whole time, three months, she stayed with Elizabeth. I think Elizabeth ministered to her, all the while Mary probably dreaded going back to Nazareth and telling mom and dad, facing the music, look, that could not have been easy. But after three months, Mary goes back to Nazareth to face the music. I imagine the first conversation she has is with her parents. Listen, in 2019, in the Western civilized world we live in, like in 2019, that's an awkward conversation. But what does that conversation with Mary and her parents look like in the first century Jewish world? What does she say? And how do they respond? And how does the community respond? How does her ultra-conservative, small-town religious community respond to her news that she's pregnant but I don't know who the father is there's really I can't really explain it it's God God's the father God's the father of your baby okay and then I'm not sure this is any better she has to leave her parents and go tell Joseph her fiance and both of them know he's not the father like how does that conversation go down well Joseph you know I said angel and just, I don't know, God's the father. But, you know, it's like, can you imagine being in Joseph's situation? In Joseph's, he handles it as well as can be expected for a 17-year-old upstanding young man. Like, he's like, okay, I don't know what to make of your story, Mary, but I'm out. I'm out. I'm sorry. I can't. We're done. Lose my number. I hate to do this, but I'm unfollowing you on Instagram. I'm out he goes home goes to sleep that night god lets joseph in on the secret through an angel through a dream joseph wakes up like what, what? what? you couldn't have told me this yesterday god do you have any idea how awkward it is to refollow someone after you unfollow them <laughs> oh, on instagram yesterday would have been really nice to know this god but Joseph, y'all, to, to his credit, once he's let in on the secret, Joseph steps up. And I imagine he steps up, um, even though his parents wouldn't have wanted him to. Even though Mary was, uh, you know, persona non grata everywhere in Nazareth. she No one believed her. He, he bought into that storyline. Hook, line, and sinker he was in. To his credit, y'all, Joseph was in with mary and that could not have been easy to stand beside her for if for no other reason than just because of how the rumor mills work in small towns how many of you are from small towns less than a thousand people don't be ashamed all right well i expected more honestly less than less than five thousand people all right a few more hands so let me tell you about my small town (laughs) i feel a little bit like a black sheep at this point like okay well uh Red Lake, Texas had 248 people when I was growing up. And that's where I spent my first 18 years. And so I know all about small towns. Small towns are notorious for several things, actually, but especially for the rumor mill. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's in everybody's business, right? And the rumor mill can be relentless. And there were rumors flying, you know. And There, there must have been. At first, it was as simple as, well, Mary and Joseph... Two kids in love, they they slipped up, you know it, it happens like they didn 't leave room for the Holy Spirit, whatever, like that kind of thing, like they just messed up, and now they 're saying it's god 's baby, and okay, mayor, okay, Joseph, like okay, yeah, all right so and but then, over time, the rumors grew more salacious, and we ha- this is documented um, um, historically that there were other rumors flying, more salacious ones. In Mary and Joseph's lifetime, most likely, rumors like um, the real father of Mary's baby was this Roman soldier named Pantera. when Joseph and Mary were still engaged, Mary had an illicit affair with this Roman soldier named Pantera. And it was such a well-known rumor that by the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, Jewish priests who disliked the Christian movement included in their writings a description of Jesus, the Christian Messiah figure, And they called him uh, Yeshua ben uh, Pantera, which means Jesus, son of Pantera. And so that was how they referred to him formally. And Roman historians like Celsus picked up on the same rumor. So this was really well known. And and this guy, Pantera, by the way, really existed. He was a real person, uh, Tiberius Julius Pantera. And uh, he was really a Roman soldier, really a contemporary of Mary and Joseph's. But uh, and they, they, incidentally, they found his tomb in Germany in 1860. And so, real, real guy. But no serious historian really thinks there's any connection there whatsoever. It's not about it being a real rumor, a true rumor. The point is, these rumors were flying. And so when Joseph buys in to God's promise to marry, he's not just buying in for, you know, a, a fun, meaningful life. He's buying in for all of that. Like, he's, he's saying, I'm in for all the rumors In spite of all the pain, in spite of all the suffering, in spite of all the talk and all the noise, in spite of the fact we have to give up all our dreams and all our plans, I'm in. And I think that's to Joseph's credit. I think Joseph is the unsung hero of the Christmas story. Mary's awesome, don't get me wrong, Mary's great, but Joseph is the unsung hero. Um, And it's interesting, guys, we could learn a lot from Joseph about um, real, authentic masculinity. Joseph never says a single word in the Gospels, never. He never says a word. He never mouths off. He never, he never says a word in the Gospels. He, he just knows what the right thing is to do, and then he does it. And I love that about Joseph. He steps up to the plate, does the right thing, and um, hitches his wagon to Mary's um, in spite of the price that he obviously had to pay. Now, initially he said no, he came around. And, and after that point, it seems like mary and joseph got very close their relationship as described through her pregnancy is not typical for first century marriages or first century relationships it's almost romantic how much they are together it's almost like they were galvanized and i think about their relationship a lot and some of you might have been in situations like this where no one else believes in you but this one person No one else trusts what you're saying but this one person. There's no one else you can talk to in the world about what you're going through with this one person. That kind of experience describes Joseph and Mary. They were all they had. Joseph was all that Mary had. The only person she could talk to was Joseph. And vice versa as well. And so that experience, I think, just galvanized these two and brought them so close together that it would seem from the gospel accounts that when the time came for Mary to give birth to Jesus, who served as her midwife? Who caught the baby? Who said, push, breathe? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Uh, That was Joseph, who himself was probably a virgin as well. He learned a lot that night about about anatomy and all that. So they were close, very close. And I I think that is to really both of their credits, and that's part of their uh, story. I think their closeness is why when the time came for the census, everybody knows about the census that the Roman government called for, Mary... Instead of, going, instead of staying home where she belonged in her third trimester of pregnancy, instead of staying in the confines that were safe and secure and known in Nazareth, Mary goes with Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. She didn't have to. Joseph had to register. She didn't, but she goes with Joseph on that perilous journey in her third trimester, about to give birth. She goes instead of staying. in that, that makes no sense. Mary has no business doing that unless, unless Nazareth is no longer her home. Unless Nazareth is no longer home for Mary. Unless her parents' house is no longer home. It's really interesting how we think about home. Sometimes, and how our concept of home can change, isn't it? Sometimes we think that a certain place is home, and then many years pass and we go there and it's not home anymore. It's it's a little unsettling. Sometimes we think that life with a certain person is home, but then when that person isn't there anymore, are we homeless? It can be a little troubling makes me think about what home really is. It reminds me of a call that I got in the middle of the night um, a few years back. A family's home was on fire. This family used to come to the story. And, and somebody else called me and said, their, their house is on fire. It's not looking good. Please pray for this family. Maybe check in with them tomorrow. And it was a total loss. 20 years' worth of memories for a family up in smoke. And I called them the next day. I talked to the father of this family just to, you know, share my condolences and tell them I was praying for them. And and. And I just said, I'm so sorry about the loss of your home. Is there anything we can do? And he, he said, well, Eric, I'm not going to lie. It's been brutal. It's been a long night. and We're all exhausted. But I just want to make sure and be clear that we didn't lose our home last night. Our home is intact. Our home is okay. We still have our home. It was our house that we lost. And something deep in me as a, as a human being and as a father and as a husband, it resonated with me. I knew exactly what he meant. It wasn't their home that was lost, it was their house. And it made me, maybe remember the last time that I had the house to myself, right? So this is a silly memory, but this was very special to me at the time. I'm a father of two. I work with my wife. We're always together. We're very close-knit, like family. Alone time can be very difficult <laughs> to come by. Amen, hallelujah, anybody this Christmas. <laughs> all right, so if you're like me, you need to a alone time. This season can be difficult, all right? So... One time, three or four years ago, the stars aligned, my kids were with my parents, and Gio had a, uh, had a, a trip planned with some girlfriends of hers, and I was going to have the house to myself, and for months, I was, like, planning what I was going to do with that time. I was just, like, looking forward to it, like, oh, my gosh, I can't wait. It was, like, my own little Christmas, like, for a whole week, I was going to have the house to myself. I was so excited. And then the time came for me to be home alone, all by myself. Ah. Do you think it really lived up to the hype? It really didn't. As much as I looked forward to it, as much thought and planning I put into it, when it finally came, it was really kind of miserable. And I hated how little I liked it. Like, <laughs> I, was just, I was just miserable. I, I felt like I was going crazy. I couldn't go to sleep. At night, I kept telling the funniest jokes. No one laughed. I, I ate Kentucky Fried Chicken four meals in a row, which is possible. I don't recommend it. I just did not feel good about myself or about how I spent that time. But it really made me realize that I was, <laughs> that, that I actually had the house to myself, but I was not at home. I was not at home, even though I had the house to myself. A house, we know, doesn't make a home, does it? Of course not. A house doesn't make a home, but what does make a home? Now, you might think after hearing that story that I'm going to tell you that a family makes a home. If I had my family back, I'd be at home, and there might be some shades of truth to that, but that's really not always the case, is it? People don't make a home either, even if you share the same last name, even if, you know, you share a house. It's not a given that people can make a home either. Some of you grew up in in family situations. You know exactly what I mean. You were neglected or maybe you were abused. You know very well that uh, sharing a house with people doesn't make it a home. Sharing a last name with people doesn't make them a home for you. So if a house doesn't make a home and a family or people don't necessarily make a home, what makes a home? Jesus told a story one time about a young man who lived with his father. And he resented his father so deeply even though his father had really taken really good care of him, had probably spoiled him rotten, this young man resented his father and and just had this overwhelming sense that his father didn't um, give him what he deserved. He didn't give him the attention he deserved. He didn't, you know, give him the privilege he deserved. He didn't didn't give him the accolades he deserved. He just wanted more, expected more. He felt like he deserved more, and so one day he just blew up he lost it he looked at his father and he said give me my inheritance you're as good as dead to me go ahead and give me what's mine what i'm going to get when you die because in my mind you're already gone write me a check i'm out of here i'm leaving you'll never see me again and the father heartbroken writes the check and watches his son leave and the the, the young man thinks that leaving his father's house is going to mean freedom it's going to mean you know at last I can breathe like I did with a house to myself. Yeah, at last. Fully alive and free. And that feeling lasted a little while, but it lasted only as long as the money lasted. And once the money had run dry, his feelings changed. Bankrupt and starving, he laid face down in the mud and thought to himself, what am I going to do? And he knew his options were limited. In fact, they were limited down to one, his only option to survive was to go back to his father's house. He's, he thought to himself, I'll just go back to my dad's house and, and ask to be received back, not as a son. I don't expect to be a son anymore based on what I did. I've already had my inheritance. I'm not a son anymore. But just to be one of his servants with a salary, just so I can survive. And so he gets up on his feet and he starts that difficult, humiliating journey home, one step at a time. And every step along the way, he's rehearsing his speech. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired hands. I want to survive. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your servants and give me a salary. I just want to survive. And he says it again and again, and he finally gets close to home. He recognizes the path that he's on, and he looks up and sees his father's house in the distance, and he knows that he's close, and then he takes another look at the horizon in front of him, and he sees... A strange figure coming his way. He sees this figure with his robe uh, hiked up and skinny-scrawled old man legs running straight toward him. It's his father running, full tilt in his direction. And the young man is terrified. He thinks to himself, he's finally coming to give me what I deserve. And he braced himself for the beating of a lifetime. But when his father reached him, all he gave his son was a hug and a kiss and new clothes and a party. For his son had come home. He said, welcome home, son. Jesus taught us that a house may not make a home. Family may not always make a home. The only thing that always makes a home is love. True, real love. Not the fanciful, like fairy tale love we see in movies and stuff, real, raw, gritty, forgiving, love, a love that hurts sometimes, that kind of love is what makes a home that 's what Jesus came to show us. That might be why jesus 's best friend John came along late in his life and wanted to make sure everybody really understood just how closely the concepts of love and God are connected. He said in fact, God is love. What a profound statement that God is love. Another familiar passage, it's easy to gloss over and forget what powerful implications that there are here if God is love. Listen, this is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from all other worldviews. Lots of other religions say God is powerful, God is mighty, God is fearsome, God is, is uh, you know, to be obeyed. All these things that we say about God, he's infallible. Only Christianity says God is love. Think with me about this. If God is love, then love existed before anything right? Love is eternal. If God is love, then love is not what um, social sciences and others are in, in modern day times are saying, that it's just a chemical reaction in your brains. It's an evolutionary, you know, an inherited trait because your ancestors had the same chemical reaction when they saw a pretty girl. You have it now. I love you. You know, that kind of thing. That's not, it's not just chemicals. It's eternal, right? And so if God is love the universe, the cosmos, sprang forth from love. The earth came from love. You were created by love in the image of love. Love really is eternal if God is love, which would explain all the absurd things we say when we are in love. Girl, <laughs> I'm going to love you forever. <laughs> don't know what you're talking about forever you have no control over that whatsoever be realistic at least be honest you know girl I'm gonna love you as long as I live that's still not true probably but that's at least realistic or just go go hard girl I'm gonna love you till you're 40 and then we'll see you know like (laughs) it's absurd the way we speak of love it's absurd unless unless we're created Hardwired to know intrinsically that love really is forever. Unless we're created in the image of a God who is love. If God is love, love really is forever. Maybe. Maybe that is why Mary was so willing in her third trimester of her first pregnancy to leave the safe confines of Nazareth and travel on foot or the back of a donkey, however, she did it from Nazareth to Bethlehem with this 18 year old she's supposed to get married to who knew nothing about delivering babies. Maybe that's why Mary felt so confident leaving Nazareth because. Nazareth wasn't her home anymore because ever since the angels' visit, Mary's home was developing inside of her. Love itself was right in front of her. Wherever Mary went, whether she was in Nazareth or Bethlehem or anywhere in between, love was there. And wherever her love went, she found her home. Maybe that's why Joseph felt so comfortable with this arrangement, too. Sure, come along with me, Mary. Because without the love taking shape in Mary's womb, Joseph might as well have been homeless in Bethlehem or Nazareth or anywhere in between. Because only love can make a home. And they had found it real love, true love. And when they found it, they wanted nothing less. This God of ours is love. The real meaning of Christmas is that the God who is love saw the world that he created out of love and how it had fallen into hate. And he, instead of keeping his distance, wanted to enter into it. And so he came here to know us, to love us. He came here to understand our situation. He came here to be a part of it, and he made his home here. This God we celebrate at Christmas, this God who came to us as a baby, is unlike any other God the world has ever known or worshipped. This God is not satisfied with simply making your heart fear him. You might have heard some Christian preachers standing like I'm standing here and telling you that fearing God is the most important thing. It isn't. This God is it's not enough for him to make your heart believe in him. Maybe you've heard that believing in God as a concept is the most important thing. It isn't. This God described in the gospel, is, it's not enough for him to make your heart worship him even. This God will not rest and will not be satisfied until he makes your heart his home. Paul told the first Christians that Christ will make his home in your heart as you trust in him. That is what Christmas is all about. But it's just the beginning of God's plans. Christmas wasn't the end game. It was the start of God's plan to restore you. And when he makes your heart his home, you know he remodels, he rebuilds, he restores. And that can take a little while. Christmas isn't the end, it's the beginning. We are still works in progress here. And the Bible speaks to the fulfillment of God's plans coming in the future. And that is why you can have a house full of people and feel more lonely than you've ever felt. That is why families can let each other down. That is why we get depressed. That is why... We feel like something's a little bit off. We are not finished products yet. We are half-built Christmas trees. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to take wrong turns. We're going to put our hope in the wrong things. The Christmas promise remains that God is love. And that's all that matters. If, If I... Have the ability to speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love. I'm just a clanging cymbal. If I have all the faith in the world to move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have away to the poor, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love, real love, is patient, it is kind. Real love always perseveres, always hopes, always trusts, always protects. Love never fails. God never fails. He didn't fail Mary, even though her life was turned upside down. He didn't fail Joseph, even as the rumors swirled. And no matter what kind of year you've had, he hasn't failed you, and he won't. And no matter what awaits you in the year ahead, what challenges or what kind of depths of loneliness or what, what, what awaits you in 2020, God will not fail you. You can trust him. He will make your heart his home. And no matter what this world throws your way, God is love. And love never fails that's what Christmas is about and so this Christmas in the midst of the madness of it all if you have any inclination whatsoever that God is at your heart's door and you're curious or you know you've been running from it or avoiding opening the door of your heart just a little bit I encourage you right now to be real with yourself and real with God and maybe even in the last parts of this worship service, just to open the door of your heart just a little bit. Especially if you know what you've been doing isn't working. You know that something's a little off. Make a different choice this Christmas. Let God make your heart his home. Merry Christmas. Would you pray with me? God, we want. Christmas to be real this year, not plastic, not fake, not just a a day that we laugh and smile our way through and when it's over, nothing changes. God, we, we need something more this year. Some of us are coming off a really, really hard year. We've lost someone that was home to us for many years. Some of us have had some really tough financial times this year, and we have felt that fear that creeps in, the uncertainty. Some of us, uh, frankly, are just uh, really unsure about what we believe to be true about you or the universe or us, purpose. And so we just wander through each day. God, help us to have the courage to open the the doors of our hearts just a little bit tonight. To trust you. To make our hearts your home. And to restore us to your image, to the image of love again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.